that I mean that uh, states can make pronouncements on international law uh, in general, that can be evidence of opinio juris, <coughs> but less so in relation to uso state practice if they make a general statement of what law is. Uh, while if a, if a state makes a statement in relation to factual instances, a certain dispute or a certain situation, that could demonstrate state, state practice. Um, I'm uh, moving on now to the second potential function, and uh, it concerns interpretation. And uh, um, normally when we encounter questions about interpretation in national law, we go to the Vienna Convention. Uh, but the Vienna Convention is on the law of treaties, and it's not obvious that we can use the principles uh, in that convention in relation to UN Security Council resolutions. So before we, we start to discuss whether the Vienna Convention is applicable or not to resolutions, we have to consider what is interpretation. And in, in most legal systems, or all legal systems I would argue, uh, interpretation is a part <coughs> of the legal method. And uh, the following uh, interpretive arguments are acknowledged in most legal systems and by most legal scholars. It's textual arguments, systematic arguments, intentionalist arguments, and teleological arguments. One could probably add or mo more types of arguments, but that's kind of the, the, uh, the, 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 the major types of arguments. And uh, in um, different legal systems or traditions, uh, different weight is given to these different arguments. Uh, so it's, it's not the question of that certain legal systems dismisses one type, it's more a question of where the weight is put. Um, now, um, there, there's three potential options, and I've used here uh, the work of Aki, who's here, uh, he, he has written on this topic. Uh, so there's three potential ways of approaching this. One way is to kind of just assume that Security Council resolutions should be treated as treaties and just apply the Vienna Convention. Uh, that's a little bit problematic because treaties, one could perceive that as agreements between all the parties concerned, while if you think about the resolution, uh, it's adopted by a limited number of states and may affect uh, responsibilities and the position of states that are not in involved in decision making. So it's, it's that, that makes it difficult to kind of equate it with, with, with a treaty. Uh, one could also apply the rules of Vienna Convention on Law, Treaties Mutandis Mutandis, kind of like an analogical argument, uh, and uh, uh, be done with that. <clears throat> or one could establish a separate analytical framework uh, which would use well-established interpretive methods, the ones that I had on the previous slide. And if one looks at doctrine and also uh, case law uh, advisory opinions coming out from the ICJ, it appears that most prefer this third option. Uh, <clears throat> and it also suits my study uh, in relation to this explanation of votes, so it's, it's an approach that I've uh, adopted as well. And uh, here I've, I've written some about resolutions that uh, it's one thing that they're not treaties, not agreements, but it's also difficult to argue that it's legislation. 
since uh, most of the time the resolutions are in relation to a particular dispute or situation, they're not intended to uh, generally regulate uh, a certain type of issues. There's this exceptions, but uh, you can't mechanically assume that resolutions are some type of legislation. Uh, and I think it's Aki who, who, who argues that you can see it as unilateral institutional acts with binding force and the onus purpose. Uh, another uh, writer in this area is Wood. And um, uh, he has made some, some interesting observations. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to read through all of this quote, but uh, his starting point is the text. <coughs> Uh, but then he goes over to argue that we should also consider uh, what, what the parties considered or the intention of the council. And uh, so he lists four different factors that we should consider the intention of the council, the surrounding circumstances, the context, uh, the general principles of interpretation as they've been elaborated in relation to treaties, but with caution. Uh, and what I find is most interesting is the circumstances of the adoption of the resolution where great weight is given to preparatory work compared to treaties. And now we have to ask ourselves what is preparatory work in relation to resolutions. Uh, it could be previous resolutions. It often, I, I said that the United Nations Secretariat doesn't prepare resolutions, but quite often uh, the U.S. Secretary General has a report and the resolutions are based on a report and one could perceive those reports as some kind of preparatory work. But also, I would argue, explanation of votes could be maybe not uh, directly transposable to kind of concept of preparatory works, but something akin to, to this uh, concept. If I may continue here with Wood, uh, he, he states the following. Given their essentially political nature, now he's talking about UN Security Council resolutions, and the way they are drafted, the circumstance of the adoption of the resolution and such preparatory work as exists may often be of greater significance than in the case of treaties. The Vienna distinction, now he's talking about the difference between Articles 31 and Articles 32, uh, between the general rule and the supplementary means have even less significance than in the case of treaties. So what he's essentially arguing is that the circumstances, the preparatory works, has greater significance when it comes to resolutions compared to how we do when we interpret treaties. That's his basic argument. Uh, and here I've underlined the parts of this quote which I found interesting. Um, now, uh, going to uh, the ICJ, uh, they've uh, made statements about this. And one of the uh, uh, earlier pronouncements on this is the Namibia Advisory Opinion. It's from 1971, where, um, the, Secured, uh, where the ICJ had to interpret a Security Council resolution. And what is interesting, this was at the time when uh, the Vienna Convention on Interpretation of Treaties had just been adopted. It was two years before. So, it would have been uh, one one might expect that the ICJ would use the Vienna Convention when interpreting resolutions, but they opted not to do so. 
And uh, so what the, what, the what the ICJ stated was that the language of a resolution of the Security Council should be carefully analyzed before a conclusion can be made as to its binding effect. In view of the nature of the powers under Article 25, the question whether they have been in fact exercised is to determine in each case having regards to the terms of the resolution to be interpreted. That's the textual approach. This discussion leading to it. So when I read this discussion leading to it, I understand that to be the discussion in the Security Council. And there we have the explanation of votes. If I move on now to the ICJ Kosovo advisory opinion from 2010, uh, and uh, they also consider whether they're going to use uh, the principles of the Vienna Convention, uh, but they point out that there's differences between Security Council resolution and treaties, and that means that other factors uh, need to be taken into account. And if I continue in the same paragraph, uh, the interpretation of Security Council resolutions may require the court to analyze statements by representatives of members of the Security Council made at the time of their adoption. So here we have the explanation of votes again. Uh, now, uh, uh, so, so uh, what I've just described is that we can, when interpreting resolutions, we can use the same type of means of interpretation as we're familiar with. Maybe we have to give them different weight. Uh, so uh, what I'm going to do now is to discuss some of these means of interpretation. And what uh, several scholars point as is teleological interpretation is something that is useful or uh, recommended when, when interpreting UN Security Council resolutions. Uh, now, when we have teleological interpretation, we have to ask ourselves where do we find the telos, the objective or the aim, the object and purpose of the resolution. So, uh, Anki has suggested that we should look in the UN Charter. Uh, other options would be to look in the preamble of the resolution. Uh, I would argue that you can also look in the text of the operative paragraph. Sometimes the Security Council say that we authorize the member states to do something in order to, and then you can understand what the purpose is, or the travel preparatoire, uh, including the explanation of votes. And my argument is that you don't have to pick here. You can arguably find the telos or the objective in several different places. It's not necessary to, to choose and say that it's only one place where we need to find it. It can be several places. So they're not mutually exclusive. Um, uh, there's also interesting case law from other courts. So we have the Aljeda case, where uh, the European Court of Human Rights had to interpret resolutions from the UN Security Council. And then uh, it becomes interesting, how did they interpret it? What, what means did they use? Uh, and uh, uh, they looked at, uh, they, they found the purpose in the UN Charter. It's also interesting to note that in this paragraph, they don't make reference to the Vienna Convention, but they still uh, use teleological interpretation. Uh, if we move on to the, to the ad hoc tribunals for Yugoslavia and Rwanda, uh, they've had uh, many occasions to interpret UN Security Council resolutions since 
both of these tribunal statutes are established by the Security Council. And uh, if we look at, at an early decision from 1995 in Tadic, uh, the ICTY uh, used teleological interpretation. They did not make any references to the Vienna Convention, so it supports this argument that I made before that kind of mechanically use the Vienna Convention. But if you look in later case law from the ad hoc tribunals, there are several instances where um, the tribunals and also uh, where, where, where they uh, make a reference to the Vienna Convention. So it's not totally consistent, this practice from the ad hoc tribunals. Uh, so here we have, I've underscored here what uh, the finding in Aljeda, where the purpose is uh, said to be maintaining international peace and security. It's derived from the Charter of the United Nations. Uh, and uh, what is interesting in the Tadic case was that they found that you can find uh, the objective in the statements of Security Council members regarding their interpretation of the statute. Uh, and in order to kind of strengthen my argument uh, even more, uh, we have uh, from Aki's piece, uh, you also mentioned that we have to look at statements of representatives of member states who are the drafters of the resolution. So uh, I think there's ample support for, for this approach. Uh, now moving on, um, if, if we try to kind of leave for a while this kind of strict... Uh, uh, legal approach and look at, at the grander picture. Uh, what, what, is the, uh, what is the role or function of, of uh, explanation of votes for the system as such? And uh, what we can see in many resolutions from the Security Council is a struggle between different states, uh, where some states seek to preserve the system and the law as it is, uh, while others seek to adjust it, amend it, or revise it. And uh, what, what I, uh, preliminary finding when, when looking through these statements, is you can see this uh, coming out in these discussion between states, where some states try to preserve the status quo, while some states seek to, to, to change. Uh, but it's not only a question of uh, the current... Uh, um, superpowers on the one side and uh, rising powers on the other. You can also see examples where uh, powers such as the US seeks to revise the law. Uh, and we'll come back to that later when, when we'll go through the case studies. Uh, a second uh, way to look at this is to look at the Security Council as an interpretive community. Uh, and uh, um, Again, I'm borrowing from you, Aki, and uh, you picked up fish in your piece. Uh, that uh, one can see uh, the Security Council as an interpretive community. Fish, uh, he's published a lot in, in legal journals, but he's originally a linguist. And uh, he introduced this concept of interpretive communities in 1980 or 1981. And uh, what he means with, uh, it's basically a discussion about, uh, is... Uh, is the content of a text in the words of the text or with the reader. And uh, what uh, Fish is actually arguing is that it's somewhere between, and it's not an individual reader, but we're kind of uh, looking at text together. And one could transpose this to the Security Council, what the Security Council is doing, it's a group, 
and its reading and discussing and amending texts together. Uh, and uh, uh, this has been picked up by Aki, but also by Johnstone. Uh, so uh, Johnstone writes the following, interpretation of international is the search for an intersubjective understanding of the norms at issue. The interpretive task is to ascertain what the law means to the parties of, to a treaty or subjects of the law collectively, rather than to the, any of them individually. It's an interactive process, the parameters of which are set by an interpretive community. And these interpretive communities, uh, they have certain norms, certain limits on how to have this discussion, but these norms, these limits can change. It depends on the members of the community. And I believe this is kind of a relevant metaphor uh, for what the Security Council is doing. There's different views within the community, not everybody agrees, uh, but arguably, uh, there's a kind of common de denominator what, uh, that everybody can relate to. And some of the members may seek to change that, but in the end, everybody has to kind of relate to, to the same common core. Uh, a third way of approaching this is, is to discuss it in, in terms of paradigms, that in different parts of international law, uh, there's paradigms on what is permitted or not, and what interests are relevant or not. And uh, uh, I've listed here possible paradigms, power politics, idealism, sovereignty. Uh, and uh, what one could argue is that in different periods of the life of the Security Council, different paradigms may be relevant and different actors, either if they're trying to protect the status quo or if they seek to revise it, may have different views of whether the paradigms should stay as it is or if it should change. And that's also something I argue one can see in, if one reads these explanation of votes. So now I'm going into the case studies. I'm going to go through three resolutions, and I think for most of them it's familiar resolutions. So I'll start with one a little bit old, maybe, but still interesting. So uh, it's the res resolution 678, which authorized the use of force in relation to Iraq. It was adopted in 1990, and in uh, 1991 uh, it was the deadline. It was, the deadline was set in 1991, and as you know, that's when uh, Iraq was ousted out of Kuwait. Now, if we, if we look at, at resolution, uh, and I've uh, highlighted certain part of it, I'm, I'm going through different statements of the different states, and you will see what, what they're arguing. So if we start with US, uh, they're talking about uh, the purpose of today's resolution is to bring about the peaceful resolution of this uh, a problem, but they also say that we talk about the newly effective United Nations Security Council, uh, and they're also talking about a new world order. And then we have Russia, um, and they're also talking about a new just world order. The purpose of the resolution we have just adopted is to put an end to the to the aggression. And one also have to consider. What was the controversies at this time, if we go back to 1990? Maybe it's obvious now, but it wasn't obvious then. So two of the controversies, there could have been more. One controversy, what is the final goal of this resolution and the, the, this operation? Is it to throw out Iraq of Kuwait, or is it also to 
oust Saddam Hussein from power. Because in certain circles in the US at the time, they wanted to go all the way to Baghdad and uh, uh, induce a, a regime change. That was one discussion. Another discussion, because uh, the Security Council until this point of time had been paralyzed. So the question was, when you have this type of enforcement action, who is supposed to do it? Is it uh, the individual member state? Or is this some kind of UN operation where it's under the control and supervision of the UN? So that was also a discussion at the time. So we'll come to that. So then we have Yemen, which was one of the states that voted no. And they picked up on this discussion on who's supposed to uh, implement enforcement action. Uh, the security, they stated the following, the Security Council will have no control over those forces, will fly their own national flag. Furthermore, the command of those forces will have nothing to do with the United Nations, although their actions will have been authorized by the Security Council. It's a classic example of authority without accountability. So what, what they... Now, one can talk about hidden agendas, but we, if we only read what they're saying, what they're essentially saying, we support the purpose of the resolution, but not the means, if one kind of just reads what they're saying. Uh, but it's also interesting, this statement, because going back to this notion of paradigm, that one could argue that the UN uh, Charter provided that it should be, in a sense, a UN army when we have enforcement action. But this resolution and subsequent resolutions and subsequent uh, actions show this is not what happened or that's not how we look at enforcement action. Um, and uh, um, I'll go on now to the next resolution, uh, uh, which is 1973 uh, from 2011, which concerned responsibility to protect on Libya. So uh, the major controversy in relation to that resolution was whether it authorized regime change. And uh, we have to consider here that it was 10 votes in favor, five abstentions. Uh, one of the abstentions was Germany. They make an interesting statement which we'll come back to, or it's here below. So if we look at what the states uh, said in the council, so if we start with the US, the council's purpose is clear, to protect innocent civilians. That is also something that one can see in the text of the resolution. So this is um, not, not nothing strange. Uh, but if you go on to the UK, the central purpose of the resolution is clear. To end the violence, to protect civilians, and to allow the people of Libya to determine their own future, free from tyranny of the al-Qaddafi regime. Uh, and uh, uh, this is interesting because uh, some scholars, and you could also hear it from some government representatives, that uh, they tried to kind of push the boundaries of the resolution. Uh, not necessarily that they were stating that the, the UN had authorized regime change, but uh, we could, that they could support uh, local militia or local groups to change the regime. Uh, it's also interesting to note that the uh, UK uh, stated the following that uh, rules out the foreign occupation force of any form. That's also in the text of the resolution. And it comes back in the statements of, of uh, many of the members of the UN Security Council. So that was something important. And uh, it was against uh, the, the experiences in Iraq. So uh, the, the member states didn't want to have a repetition of what happened in Iraq. 
if we go on to, to Germany, uh, they're interesting because initially they start out with saying that Gaddafi must relinquish power immediately. So that's something at the first glance you would think that they support regime change. But if one continues to read their statement and look at how they're actually voted, um, they stated the following. We have carefully considered the option of using military force, its implications as well as its limitations. We see great risk. Germany therefore decided not to support the military option. So uh, when I read this, there's no support for regime change here, even though they start with, out with saying that Gaddafi must relinquish power immediately, because in them they abstained and argued that uh, the Security Council shouldn't, or they were hesitant to use force. Then we have uh, Lebanon. We have to remember that the actions taken against Libya was partly, or mainly, it depends on how one sees, at the initiative uh, of the Arab League who asked the Security Council to do something, asked the international community to act. So this is a reference to the Arab League who was pushing for this. Uh, so they state the Libyan authorities have lost all legitimacy. Today's resolution is aimed at protecting Libyan civilians. We underscore the fact that it will not result in the occupation of any parts of Libyan territory. So it's, it's a bit kind of mixed messages here that the Libyan authorities have lost all legitimacy. One could argue that as an argument in favor of regime change. But then they say no occupation. Then we have uh, South Africa, which I, I think is the one that comes out the strongest against the resolution. Uh, as a matter of principle, we have supported the resolution with the necessary caveats to protect uh, preserve the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Libya and reject any foreign occupation or unilateral military intervention under pretext of protecting civilians. So uh, I, I read from this statement that they see a danger of regime change induced from the outside, and that's nothing they want to support. Uh, Colombia also shows some hesitance uh, we did not, they voted in favor, but they added, we did not vote in favor of indiscriminate use of force or of the occupation of a state. If we continue now, I'm taking some more statements now. We have Nigeria. Nigeria maintains that foreign occupation is not an option to secure peace in Libya. India, also skeptical towards this. We also do not have clarity about details of enforcement measures including who will participate and with what assets and how these measures will exactly be carried out. And then we have Brazil, maybe even stronger than South Africa. The text of Resolution 1973 contemplates measures that go far beyond the call. We are not convinced that the use of force as provided for in paragraph 4 of the resolution will lead to the realization of our common objective. In the unintended effect of exacerbating tensions. So uh, you have a little bit of mixed messages here in, 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 in the statements made in the Security Council. We have Russia and China. Uh, they made stronger statements after the intervention. Uh, during uh, the discussion in the Council, uh, it was not that um, straightforward. Uh, but China, they're talking about respect of sovereignty, independence, unity and territorial integrity. And again, that is something that could be interpreted as an argument against the regime change. So uh, I will now move on to the third and final resolution that, I'm that I've looked at. It's resolution uh, 2249 from 2015. This was following uh, the terror attack in Paris, but also 
uh, in other countries, in Turkey, Iraq, Russia. Uh, and you can also see that in the text of the resolution where they make references to several terror attacks. But if you look at the timeline, it was the attack in Paris that uh, in the end uh, triggered the, this resolution. So uh, if we start with the text of the resolution, it calls upon the states to take all necessary measures in compliance with international law. Uh, it's interesting to note that the text of the resolution does not contain the word self-defense. Uh, now, the, this, uh, the, the, the controversy here is, uh, or there's at least one controversy, maybe there are several, but there's especially one that I want to focus on, uh, is uh, does the resolution authorize the use of force in Syria? If I may put it in other words, Let's say, in the absence of this resolution, could states use force? Is this resolution necessary for states being allowed to use force? The alternative is that it's not an authorization. Instead, one could argue that this is some kind of self-defense where you don't need authorization. And then it becomes interesting because in the resolution they're not talking about self-defense. So the question is, what is this? Is this, do they... Uh, expand the right to use force or are they just confirming a right which the states have already without the intervention of the Security Council. Now, if we now go to the statements which I believe can help us to answer these questions. So France, they uh, recount the, the attacks against France but also other countries and they say, uh, and I've highlighted it here, uh, our military action on which we informed the Security Council from the outset and which was justified as a legitimate collective self-defense can now also be characterized as individual self-defense. So based on this, France is arguing that we have the right to take action regardless of what the Security Council is saying. Uh, if we go to the US, they're also talking about individual and collective self-defense. And it's also important as a matter of context that I mean, the U.S. was already using force in Syria at this point of time. And the argument that U.S. made at this point of time was that uh, they had been called upon Iraq to assist them to fight against IS or Daesh. Uh, and since IS was also present and staging their attack against Iraq from Syria, the U.S. and Iraq uh, had the right to use force also against uh, IS groups or camps. Uh, in, in, in Syria. So uh, this was a restatement what the US had said before. What is also interesting is that uh, they say the following, the al-Assad regime in Syria has shown that it cannot and will not suppress that threat. So this is this uh, unwilling and unable argument that comes up here. And this is also, as I see it, uh, an attempt to persuade the other members of the Security Council or if we may say the interpretive community, that we should change our interpretation. That's what the US is trying to do. Uh, then if we go over to Russia, uh, all 15 members voted in favor. So all states were arguing in favor of, of, of this. But it's interesting, still interesting to note the nuances in, in their argumentations and reasons. Uh, so they're talking about shared values and interests based on international law. And uh, 
Uh, I'll come back to that in a minute. And then they also uh, state the following, which is very interesting. In our view, the French resolution is a political appeal. So it's not a legal request, it's a political appeal. Rather than a change uh, to the legal principles underlying the fight against terrorism. So what they're saying is we're not changing the law, we're not, uh, this is not necessary. Uh, they're just asking for political support and we're willing to give them this by voting for this resolution. Uh, and uh, so, so my, my uh, interpretation of this is what the states are saying is that states have a right to take military action against a non-state actor. Uh, this has been controversial. I mean, if we go back to uh, Afghanistan 2001, uh, some say that there was a change in customary international law when the US used force against Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, and this was accepted by the other states. And uh, one could argue that most states accepted this, but in uh, scholarship, this was a debate. Uh, I would say with this, it's um, another indication that states have accepted this, that you can use force against non-state actors. We may like it or not like it, but that's my understanding of what the states are saying. Uh, and these are the three cases. So I, I will now move to my kind of tentative conclusions. Uh, so there's still some difficulties in case of disagreements and doubts about interpretation. I'm, as we see, the states are making different statements, going in different directions. What should have priority? Some states are talking about sovereignty, others about non-interference. Should we consider peace and security or other policy goals? So by looking at these explanation of votes, uh, I'm not saying that we'll get the definite answer. Instead, from a scholarly viewpoint, we can see how the different states are discussing with each other, communicating with each other, potentially kind of moving their positions. Uh, I've written here, we can show how norms are contested, potentially evolve, and maybe sometimes new consensus, which I argued in, in, the, in relation to the last uh, resolution. Uh, and uh, uh, also, fr from the title of this presentation, I asked the question whether explanation of votes can be seen as some kind of protectors of the status quo or as agents of change and uh, they could serve both functions depending on, on what the states uh, say. And uh, I will now open up the floor for questions.